Well, we have a wonderful passage in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to start reading at verse 20. I should say that this starts at the end of a a three-and-a-half-year drought. You had a drought in May. This was a a three-and-a-half-year drought. So Ahab Ahab sent all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Zion, or Mount Carmel. I'm still in the call to worship. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord God of if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire... He is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning Till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped upon the altar and, and which, which they had made, and so, that, and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves. So there was, so as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And when noonday, when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two selahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill the water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. 
Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for this is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. little sip of water, all that talk about dryness. Pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. If you are a Christian, you know who rightfully claims to be the master of your life. I say that without any qualification. When God changes you from a God-hater to a God-lover, you know Jesus is Lord and Master. I can also say, based on my performance, you don't entirely live like Jesus is your Lord and Master. That's one reason that you are here today. You don't approach the living sacrifices that Romans 12 tells you to be wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
Your total depravity hinders you from living an Eden-esque life, communing with God in the cool of the evening. Mount Carmel is a mountain of decision for you and for Israel. Israel's sad spiritual state seemed far worse than yours, perhaps. After all, you're here in church. Yet the decision Israel faced, you must face daily. On Mount Carmel, God's people were confronted by God's prophet and God's power to answer the question, how long will you falter between two opinions? Who will you serve? Who is your God? In our material culture, you see something that you want, and it becomes the object of your desire, ahead of everything else, including God. And in fact, some of you, this past week, some of you may have been primed to seek material desires. At least one man got it. (laughs) Our largely godless society confronts you with things that tempt in many ways, or strikes fear and makes you retreat from, or at least conceal, your Christian principles, values, and beliefs. Some here have witnessed the the downward moral spiral that this country has gone through over the last several decades as it races away from God. I'm old enough, I was just a half year from graduating high school, when we still had Bible reading and prayer, and then it was removed. Today, many, probably most of you in this room, don't know that that was the practice. And at least in some districts, mine, the mandate in most public schools that the Bible be read every school day. Now, the family illustrates the decline. Without an objective moral standard, the sexual revolution of the 60s led an attack on marriage as God ordained it, starting with no fault and frivolous excuses for divorce. Then the mismatch of sinful relationships followed, and now the lie of gender identity, including the awful mutilation of young people groomed to believe that they are not their God-given gender. The fearsome rate of abortions, which is beyond question murder, despises the truth that we are created in God's image. Now let me say right here, all these things are not beyond God's ability to forgive. Jesus died to accomplish forgiveness and redemption. It it is ultimately why Elijah asks his question and why it is in the Bible so that you can be confronted by it. Now, through all of this, the church has largely stayed quiet or retreated from the public square. When these subjects arise, it's easier to run into a corner and hide than to speak the truth of God as should be done, yes, with humility and charity. But it's not just bad in society. 
It's also bad wherever you are. You have things that distract you from God. You can identify them really without much effort. Pleasing yourself comes before pleasing God as your natural instinct. You may not be in the same sad state of Israel at the time of this mountain's testimony, but you must recognize that you are not too far away from that place. Now, no matter where you are in respect to Israel, you can never be too close to God. So the question on the mountain ought to be a question of your life at each point of decision, at each point of confrontation, at each point of direction. How long will you falter between two opinions? Mount Carmel will manifestly show God makes his way clear and the choice of who is God beyond doubt. Mount Carmel is actually a mountain range, not one peak. It runs roughly 12 miles in length. Its highest place is only 1,728 feet above sea level, just over a quarter of a mile. It rises almost immediately out of the Mediterranean Sea. And unlike New Jersey's standy beaches and barrier islands, Mount Carmel's abrupt incline gives the impression of being a taller mountain than it actually is. Now, there are a few mountains that stand taller, though, spiritually than Mount Carmel. Few show the power of God as Mount Carmel's events display his almightiness. Few convey his love so clearly. Mount Carmel is covered with verdant shrubbery. Now, they're not short shrubs. They're about my height or a little higher, making it a very green mountain. The shrubbery bears fruit, and there are several references in the Bible to the fruitfulness of Carmel. The name actually means park or garden, a fair description of its natural attributes. You will see the mountain bears the greatest fruit of all, though, the turning of a nation to God, bringing sinners to their Savior. There are two specific biblical references to Mount Carmel and several other probable ones. This was the mountain where the Shunammite woman found the prophet Elisha when she sought help in raising her dead son. She came to this mountain because it appears to have been a favorite retreat for Elijah and Elisha. Today's scripture lesson tells the mountain's greatest event, the confrontation between Elijah and Ahab to show who is God in Israel. It's a contest of sorts between Elijah and the priests of Baal. The outcome will identify the true God and king of Israel. Elijah preaches to God's people, Israel, and to you. How long will you falter between two opinions? Why aren't you following God? Now, there is no stated reason why Mount Carmel was selected for this this contest, but there are some which commend themselves. It was an area where many people could observe the contest. Ahab ordered the entire nation of Israel to come to this. 
It was also an area green and lush, but after three and a half years of severe drought, must have been brown and dead. The people weary of the drought would have a vivid reminder of their plight. So it provided a ready ready testimony to the true God. Jehovah God had brought this drought, and the false priests and gods couldn't undo it. The impotency of Baal and the power of God were evident even before the contest began. Another reason for choosing this site was that there was already an altar to the true God. Though it seems odd that there can be an altar outside the temple at this time, there are references to other altars before the temple was built. We do see this in God's grace. We do see this as an example of God's grace to the northern kingdom, known as Israel. It is unlikely these people would travel to Judah, the southern kingdom, and go to the temple. Secondly, this was no ordinary sacrifice. Elijah was a prophet, not a priest. If you recall King Saul's impatience in taking the place of a priest and his subsequent punishment, you understand Elijah's role in this also raises questions along with the location. But all these become non-issues when you realize that Elijah did pray at the appointed time for sacrifices He did prepare the altar and the bull for the sacrifice. However, it was not Elijah that performed the burnt sacrifice. It was God himself. I suppose we can all agree that God can pick any place to perform a sacrifice. And as we see in Christ's sacrificial work, he can also be the priest. Elijah the prophet preaches to the assembled people, priests, and king. How long will you falter between two opinions? Those people, like all people, wanted their cake and eat it too. Like many today, they want to hedge their bets. Believe a little in this God and a little in this God. Cover all the bases. We have have different man-made gods than the Israelites, but they aren't as different as they first seem. We don't have Moloch who consumes our children as they march into his fiery mouth. Today, though, we have, for many, many selfish reasons, sacrifice many who sacrifice their children to the idol of divorce, which leaves them nearly as dead as Moloch did, but, all, but allows them to live the damaged life that their selfish parents have given them. Why? So the parents can serve themselves. They become the gods they serve. Yes, there is legitimate divorce, and God uh, will be merciful to those. We don't have gods that demand our wages, but we do spend our money on things that do not edify or teach us how to live godly lives. We're not satisfied with enough. Enough, in our thinking, only means just a little bit more. A little more will be enough until we have it, and it doesn't satisfy. You and I can hardly take the moral high ground when it comes to our entertainment. The things depicted, the way they are depicted, the words used to convey the message, well, they rarely speak the truth of God in any way. Your gods may be different, 
but they are no better. They may be more sophisticated, but they are no less harsh and ruthless. They may be more pleasing to the eye, but they sour the soul and darken society. So listen now as the prophet speaks. Hearken to his words as he presents the real challenge on this mountain. How long will you falter between two opinions? Will you serve the one true God who will make you righteous and holy? Or the other man-made things designed to defraud and debase you? Elijah questions, Elijah's question reminds me and would have reminded the Israelites of another mountain scene. It was another instance when God, through his spokesman, Joshua, put words of decision before them. Joshua speaks of blessing and cursing and then declares, choose this day whom you will serve. You may remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And I hear another one testifying to those who did not choose between two opinions, but faltered. It is the Lord in the book of Revelation saying, Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The failure to follow fully is a recurring issue for man. Picture yourself on Mount Carmel. The prophet asks, implores you to not sit on the fence regarding your commitment to Almighty God. The people of Israel are there. They can already see the dried out scene before them, what their trust and bail has produced. Yet almost inconceivably, they remain speechless. They were still hedging their bets. They should have shouted Joshua's answer when he asked the Hebrews his question. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unprepared, unwilling, unable to fight their natures, they remain silent. God graciously pursues these people. The people needed rain. The land needed rain. The people in the land needed rain badly. God can send rain. He sent unprecedented rain in the day of Noah flooding the entire world. Rain is not a difficulty for God. Perhaps that's why he didn't demonstrate his power by sending rain. Rain was needed. Elijah proposes fire. Fire to consume an offering. Here they are standing on a mountain that must have been a tinderbox. We heard about campfires and the concern for those. Well, this is 12 miles of dried out wood. A spark out of control would make this a blazing inferno. 
Perhaps the people thought it had to rain sometime. The drought would last, wouldn't last forever, so they probably thought rain would be suggested. It would be a safe bet, probably. Fire, I'm sure, though they agreed to it, was still a surprise, and perhaps a scary surprise. It was outside human control or coincidental occurrence. This would be an act of God, either Baal or Jehovah. Elijah invites the prophets of Baal to go first. He knew that they would fail, so the victory of Almighty God would be final. A spectacle follows. Priests jumping around, yelling, carrying on. Some jumped on their, on their altar as if to offer themselves if the bull was not enough for their gods. Others cut themselves apparently quite severely. Maybe if the blood of the bull was not incentive enough for their gods, their own blood would be. Our scripture lesson explored all this quite thoroughly. The prophet Micah asks, what does God expect or desire from us? Rivers of oil? Our firstborn? The fruit of our body for the sin of our souls? No, he wants us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. These false priests thought their gods wanted more, much more. They go on all day. Elijah alone taunts them and encourages them to try harder. Maybe your God is busy somewhere else. Maybe you aren't important enough for your God to be bothered. Finally, as the day draws to close, they give up. How disappointing their false gods couldn't show the Israelites and Jehovah what they could do. They would soon find out that their false gods couldn't save them either. Elijah now repairs the altar of the true God. He won't use the one built for the false god, Baal. He repairs the altar with 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel. It is a way of showing God's judgment on the divided kingdom. Then after placing a bull on the altar, Elijah digs a trench around the altar. You know, I find it interesting that Elijah clears an area around the altar. He knew that this was a tinderbox. And so he took precaution to prevent an out-of-control fire. For fire was surely coming. Next, he has lots of water poured on the altar and the sacrifice. And I'll take a sip of water. Now, there were likely springs on Mount Carmel, but one must assume they had dried up by now. It's good that the Mediterranean Sea was close at hand. It's a beautiful sight standing on Mount Carmel, looking out across the Mediterranean Sea, I assure you. Enough water was poured that everything was soaked, and the drought-hardened earthen trenches around the altar were filled with water. Elijah did this so that no one could claim that he had hid a smoldering ember in the wood under the sacrifice. Or somehow a spark could be struck to start the fire. Only the true God could start a fire now. 
Jesus teaches you if you have faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. You could move Mount Carmel. Elijah's faith was not faltering. He didn't have to appeal to an uncaring, unloving, unmerciful God. Isn't it interesting how Psalm 21 says, you know, God's not going to slumber or sleep. But apparently the gods of Baal, which we know aren't there, appeared to be slumbering or sleeping because they didn't respond. All Elijah has to do is simply ask God to send fire. No jumping, no annex, no bleeding, no self-sacrifice, no yelling, no dancing around. He only prays this simple prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and you have turned their hearts back to you again. Fire! I'm sorry, I had to do that because that's what happened. Fire consumes the sacrifice. Fire consumes the water even in the trenches. Fire consumes the very stones in the altar. It even consumes the dust. It is an awesome demonstration of God's power. It reminds me of another altar and another sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac were together and Abraham was directed to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac observes, there's the fire and there's the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham responds, God will provide. Here on Mount Carmel, there is the wood and there is the sacrifice, but where is the fire? God will provide. It wasn't the last time that God would provide. And it wasn't the last time there was another striking similarity. Elijah prayed in part, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And you know that you love God because he first loved you. It's the same thing. He sent his son Jesus to be the good shepherd to find you where you were utterly lost. And now you know that when you falter in your beliefs, when you waver between two opinions, when you hesitate to express your faith solely in Jesus, Jesus does not waver. Jesus does not falter. Jesus responds with power and might and mercy and love and provision. You know that better than those on Mount Carmel. You know that God became the perfect priest and sacrifice to demonstrate his immeasurable love for you. You know that while you were yet sinners, he sent his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to be your savior, to redeem you from your sin, to claim you for heaven. You know that when there was need of a sacrifice, God did supply. He supplied his own son and did not supply a substitute to be the perfect, complete 
and final sacrifice for your sins. And then he showed his awesome might, not by sending fire or rain, but through the resurrection of Christ. How long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you waver in your commitment to Christ? How long will you hold on to your precious sin? How long will you remain lukewarm? Mount Carmel is the mountain of decision. Even these hard-hearted Israelites could not resist the irresistible grace of God displayed in this fiery show of his omnipotent power, might, and majesty. Here's the Bible telling of their response. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. On another hill, at another time, Calvary, a centurion stood and observed intently the death of another, more important sacrifice for sin. Now, the centurion would be held responsible, likely at the cost of his life if something wasn't done as it should, so he paid very close attention. He saw, as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, something in Jesus' death that he hadn't seen in others that he had observed. Now, it was not, in visual terms, as dramatic a scene as the one on Mount Carmel. And though subdued by man's perception, it was still more powerful, more mighty than the fire on Mount Carmel. The centurion, like the Israelites on Mount Carmel, acknowledges that power by expressing in his words, Jesus as righteous, meaning innocent, and son of God. You have an even more powerful expression of God's mighty work through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Power over death. Power of eternal life. Evidence of the Father's satisfaction of Christ's death for your sins. Will you still falter between two opinions? Or will you say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God provides salvation as the blessing of a right decision. In the case of those of Mount Carmel, it comes in the form of rain. It comes at the end of the terrible drought that hurt them in every conceivable way. It came through renewal and refreshing the earth and the bounty of good harvest and pleasurable gardens like Carmel itself. It comes from the love of God who seeks you, finds you, calls you, and redeems you. It comes in this table, which reminds us of what Christ did on Calvary for us. And it's more than a remembrance, it's a sacrament. Christ is spiritually present with us. God's blessing is for now and for all eternity, and it awaits you. So I ask you one last time, how long will you falter between two opinions? Pray with me.
Nothing, Lord, shows our weakness more than this event on Mount Carmel. For if we are honest with ourselves, we see ourselves as the Israelites gathered there. We know that we have not uh, committed ourselves the way that we ought with every thought, word, and deed. And yet, Lord, you have come to us. You have come for us. You will keep us through all eternity because of a love that we cannot fully comprehend. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be an encouragement for us when we are confronted by things in life that would have us falter, that we would not falter, but that we would make the choice to serve Almighty God as he has given himself to us in his word and through his Son. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.